Good morning from Zurich. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Brule. Coming up over the next 60 minutes, my guest today, Benno Zog and John Slape, and they'll share their views on the weekend's biggest stories. Uh, Benno, as usual, tablet is out, front pages are open. What have you got for us? All the papers are open and there's actually a common theme, which is shortage. Both Swiss newspapers talk about potential shortage of electricity. Another article talks about shortage of bread in Sudan. And obviously, we may talk about shortage of leadership in the Tory party. Very good. But no shortage of stories here. Also, our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, will bring us the view from London. We're also heading to Bangkok for the latest from there. Saladi Car from Thailand. This is Gwen Robinson for M24. And I'll be bringing you updates from Bangkok, Bali and Sydney. Very good. Plus, we're here with Selling in the Parisian Bookshop. Bonjour, Jacob. It's the 17th of July, 2022. Live from Zurich, this is Monocle on Sunday. Live from Zurich, this is Monocle on Sunday with Tyler Brulé. And good morning from a very, very sunny Zurich. Not too toasty uh, yet, maybe 22 degrees, uh, but uh, I imagine the mercury will rise across the day. Bennett Zog is here also. A new voice uh, around the microphone as well. Uh, John Slapen is joining us, uh, academic at the University of uh, Zurich here. Uh, Maybe uh, you can provide a a broader uh, CV. And good morning, by the way, John. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So uh, tell us uh, a little bit, uh, we were just chatting before you went on air, uh, of course, uh, from the far side of the Atlantic, you made the jump recently, well, not so recently, uh, across the channel uh, from uh, Colchester and Essex. Uh, now you're here, but uh, what does the daily gig look like uh, at uh, Zurich University? Yeah, so I'm a professor of political science at the University of Zurich, um, where I regularly teach European politics and uh, European integration. Uh, and I've done this gig in Switzerland, the UK, Ireland, the US, and so it's a uh, it's a great gig and gives me a, a, a broad perspective. Excellent, uh, Benno. It's all good morning. Of course, uh, Monocle security correspondent, but also uh, an academic as well uh, at the School of Security Studies, uh, also uh, in Zurich, up the hill at ETH. Very nice to see you. Good morning, Tyler. Good to see you. Uh, we were just uh, saying uh, just uh, a little bit earlier, we were talking about this notion of, of shortages uh, and, and all things uh, that, that are happening. One thing we didn't touch on, though, is also there's a shortage of, of cool weather uh, in Europe at the moment. We've sort of been looking at the monitors uh, just behind us uh, here and uh, not at the moment, but lots of uh, images of fires uh, and, and, of course, uh, everything else that goes with it. Sort of typical sort of, you know, summer story season uh, as well, because that sort of seems to be in line with also all of the the various health precautions, because we're told it's going to get warm, that you you might have to drink water, potentially. <laughs> Outrageous, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's quite interesting. It is the typical summer story, but a journalist friend told me earlier this week that these are the stories that actually generate loads of clicks as well, even though they're kind of always the same. When there's a flooding or a wildfire, that's when they get clicks. It's quite clear. And at the same time in the papers, we're talking about potential upcoming energy shortage looking to winter for a, for a variety of factors. And given it will be 30 degrees or more out, outside today in Zurich, it's hard to imagine that we need to reduce heating, which we should, of course. But So it's a bit of a disconnect there. We have the current affairs, which is obviously wildfires, which are nasty, very, very high temperatures across Europe. Um, but then we need to already think ahead to winter. Maybe that chills us down by a few degrees. That can help. Indeed. And uh, speaking of maybe chilling things down or heating up, I'm happy to say that I'm joined uh, by our Carlotta Ribello and our Chris Chermak, uh, two of our colleagues, editors and correspondents. Uh, they're just joining us uh, from the Polish border right now. Uh, they're on their way to Lviv uh, at the moment. Carlotta, good morning. Good morning, Tyler. Good morning, Tyler. 
Good morning, Chris. Good morning, Carlotta. So uh, tell us, uh, you're, you're just, uh, you're about to board the train, uh, I guess, uh, destination Lviv and seeing uh, where else uh, things will take you uh, across the Ukraine. Uh, yes, Father. We arrived this morning here at Perfmish in the Polish border. We left Krakow at around 5 a.m. It was quite an early start. Uh, and we're now on what I guess it's a, a side of the station that has been turned into this um, Ukrainian welcome and uh, departure point. Um, we saw the blue and yellow train from Ukrainian railways pull up um, with uh, people leaving the train, uh, being greeted here by staff from the World Central Kitchen and from other aid organizations that provide anything from, you know, um, a sanitary pad to food, uh, even some clothes. And we are outside that terminal uh, to do the journey in reverse to get all the documents checked to board the same train that goes back into Ukraine. Um, and uh, the destination is Kiev, but we are, the final attention of the train is Kiev, but we are stopping uh, in Lviv for this first day. Uh, Chris, you were in uh, the Ukraine just before the conflict started, uh, so this is, uh, uh, of course, a return for you. Uh, who else is inbound? Uh, of course, Carlotta just said uh, people outbound, uh, but do you have any sense of, of who's uh, going to be on uh, the ride to, uh, to Lviv and, and potentially on to Kiev? Well, that, that's what's interesting, Tyler. You definitely see a mix here, and I have to say that that's part of what makes this whole thing kind of surreal, to be honest, right? Because we're, we're sort of at this train station where on the one hand, people are coming out. On the other hand, there's, there's just as many people going in uh, for a variety of reasons, many with, with, with big bags packed, moving, moving back into, into Ukraine, because in certain parts of the country, of course, it is, again, more safe. You, you really have about half-half at this point, you know, about the same amount of people going out as you have going in in terms of Ukrainians as well. And otherwise, yeah, for that reason, too, it's just kind of surreal to be at a train station where on the one hand you have people who are clearly exhausted having just left, and on the other hand you have the cafes are open and we kind of went to this very ostentatious sort of uh, opulent cafe that's right in the station as well, which was, was uh, you know, it also had a lot of people there and these are people who are ready to go back in. Everyone's quite nonchalant about the whole thing, to be honest. A lot of other people have also kind of gone back and forth, you know. It's not only people here that have, you know, huge bags packed in order to go into Ukraine. It's people with sort of smaller day bags and, and things like that. So it's, it's oddly a porous border. Uh, Chris, I, I want to um, talk to John and Benno a little bit later about this this notion of integration, and it's certainly it's a it's a story uh, which we're seeing almost every day in in the papers uh, in Switzerland. You see them in Germany as well. A little bit about refugee fatigue, of course. All of these families who've taken people in, what this means, what is this meaning for integration as we move forward? Um, but Carlotta, just uh, very quickly, because I know you have to 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 shuffle along there uh, without sort of giving off too many tip offs. Uh, but I, I believe. Uh, our editor-in-chief would have given you a, a few stories to be looking at. Um, but what, uh, yeah, I guess how, how big is the menu of what you're expected to deliver uh, while you're there and, of course, when you get back? Oh, it is uh, quite an array of stories, Tyler, and I don't want to give much away, but let's just say that it started with five days, and I think we're now planning for eight or nine uh, with the uh, addition of a few stories. We'll be reporting, of course, across uh, Monocle 24 throughout the week on more of the newsy stuff and people we meet along the way, and then we have some um, profiles and more feature-type stories coming up for the magazine. One of the trips we're quite excited to be able to make, uh, we have been in touch with... Uh, 
um, Ukrainian railways, and we're going to take at least two sleeper trains within the country. And we'll be quite curious to find out just exactly who's on board and um, who are the people making these journeys. We need to remember that there's a curfew still in place. As journalists, we uh, are thankful to be exempt from that and to be able to report after 10 p.m. Uh, but if you're taking a sleeper train, uh, who are the other people who are exempt as well? Uh, so I guess that's one of the, that's just a little uh, reveal of what might come in the next issue of the magazine. Very good. Uh, Colada Rebello uh, and our Chris Chermak on the, the Polish-Ukraine border. We'll be checking uh, in with uh, you, of course, across the week, uh, certainly on Monocle 24. We'll be getting more from you um, on the Monocle Minute every morning. And uh, I'm sure you have a lot of copy to turn around for that fast approaching September uh, issue. But uh, have, a, have a good trip and have a good week. Uh, Benu, just uh, you were saying, and, and we heard in the news headlines as well, that, uh, of course, you know, Further saber rat, rattling out of Moscow uh, with regard to it's summertime uh, and uh, Russia, of course, talks about ramp, ramping things up further. We heard about this many months ago that there was a sense, you know, from the, the Ukraine leadership, if, if things were not in hand by summer, of course, it makes it easier. Of course, if <laughs> maybe rain will, would delay things um, in terms of getting tanks across fields, etc., do things change, you know, across July, August, September, drier, warmer months? Um, and yeah, maybe a little bit predictable, of course, that uh, that Moscow, uh, you know, would be a little bit more menacing at this time. Interestingly, that's really an echo of history where the weather and actual conditions on the ground, literally the ground, have made a huge difference to that. And people are exactly bracing for that um, because as much as you can get stuck in the mud in springtime, um, you could use these very flat territories that are currently in focus of, of war fighting in Ukraine um, for, for quick advances. But I don't think the weather in that is too, too decisive. It was very much, this summer was a period of very concentrated Russian fire in particularly Eastern Ukraine. Um, hardly a border or a front line hardly moving at all. And we should actually um, be cognizant of that, that within two months or so, Russia barely advanced despite this firepower. Um, but everyone's now bracing for this possibly renewed offensive. So the more quiet summer months were probably used for Russia to reorganize. They had a change of leadership among their the troops involved and so on. And it's quite clear that Russia is still on a if you will, maximalist course. It hasn't toned down on its rhetoric at all. It's still very keen on not just conquering an additional square kilometre of territory, that's not the point, but subduing Ukraine um, in a lasting manner long term. And that currently is pursued through military means. So in the next month or two, there's probably a renewed offensive along much of the front line. And this is what everyone is expecting also means that Ukraine is very keen to get more of this long-range artillery, to get more supplies in, to dig in, but also count, uh, launch counter-offensives, which to me are a bit doubtful because I can't really see them reconquer too, too much territory. So I'm, I'm rather looking into a long, protracted conflict where front lines don't change much. So we should kind of be ready for that. Mm. John, uh you, of course, uh, the topic of integration uh, within Europe uh, is one of your uh, beats uh, as as a professor. And as we were just saying a moment ago, not a day goes by. You can open up the pages, uh, whether you know it's Letton or you're looking at Blick or you're looking at NZZ. And, and you see the story of, of a family who has uh, brought in a teenager or uh, a family's brought in another full family. And uh, yeah, you could say the, the wheels are, are coming off or maybe the welcome wagon has pulled out after a number of months and various stories about lack of support, lack of a roadmap uh, in terms of what 
families do with, of course, uh, Ukrainians that they've that they've brought in. Maybe it's a starting point. Uh, I guess one would expect this because it sounds great in the beginning. You think maybe you're going to be engaged for maybe a number of weeks or months. Um, but, you know, we're at a half year point almost. Um, yeah. How do you how do you read it, at least from a Swiss or maybe also from a, a broader European perspective? And there are some nations doing a better job than than others when it comes to this topic. Yeah, um, no, absolutely. I think you're you're spot on. Uh, we just saw a story actually today about a young Ukrainian woman uh, for whom the Swiss authorities would not pay for dental care. Um, so we do see some of this uh, hospitality beginning to wear thin. Also, at the beginning, there was a there was a plan, there was a or a, a, a desire to provide assistance, uh, and now that w- those were short term plans, short term ideas, and now we see that those the there's a lacking of, of long term planning. Um, do people who got the S visa in Switzerland, which was the uh, the short term visa to stay here, can they? Uh, continue to stay on that visa, and it's there's some discrepancy among the cantons as to what to do uh, and whether or not these should be extended. Um, <clears throat> so uh, this is something that the the central governments are going to have to uh, plan for over the coming months, uh, and that's difficult. But so, and and the, the story of, of course, the young woman who couldn't get dental care. I'm sure, I'm sure a lot of people also in Switzerland are saying, "Well, yeah, I'd like free dental care as well." This is often what happens. You know, we 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 of course, the same story. We can think back to, of course, you know, a tide of of people that came from the Maghreb uh, in Italy who all got mobile phones uh, as well. And people say, "Well, yeah, I'd like a new mobile phone as well." Uh, and and you have this uh, situation, you know, always on the ground uh, where, yeah, of course, many people who are also underprivileged, who are taxpaying, et cetera, uh, feel, you know, not just a little bit uh, offended occasionally. Um, so this story as well, yeah, is part of it positioning. Uh, this this story sort of bubbles up in the newspaper that someone can't get dental care in, in Switzerland. Well, maybe Switzerland never promised dental care to anybody. They were opening the doors, but it didn't mean that you could get a new set of choppers potentially. Interesting. I'm not sure if that's what you wanted, by the way. But <laughs> no, not at all. It was actually well, the alternative that was suggested and the um, asylum organisations were ready to pay for was to have her teeth pulled rather than fixed. She would lose half her teeth. That was the actual story. And to be fair, there's a bit. It's a bit tricky because we do see these singular stories where exactly these kind of issues come up, but obviously they do. There's tens of thousands of people in this country who need to be taken care of. Bureaucracy at times is overwhelmed and resources are, well, I wouldn't even say in short supply, Switzerland is rich. Um, They can afford that. So it's really singular cases. And obviously solidarity, let's say, if you host someone in your own home, is eroding after a while because maybe both parties want to move on. Um, But currently the good news is still that particularly in the canton of Zurich, there are still um, homes for either asylum seekers or Ukrainian refugees that are vacant because apparently people can stay with their host family for quite long. So we should focus on kind of both sides of the story. But historically speaking, as a political scientist, migration has always been the most divisive issue. Um, It's easy to target certain groups that come in and ostensibly get everything for free. That's in a way why these stories about them not getting everything for free and actually having to struggle to get basic basic services, even though it's quite sad in that case, also reminds us that there isn't this huge privilege related to to refugees. And just to add maybe one more line echoing what Chris Chermak from, from the border just told us earlier, 
many are returning. Up to one-fifth or one-fourth or so of people who have fled Ukraine are returning to their homes because they're in, in, in territories and regions that are considered fairly safe, apart from the odd Russian missile. So there's really two sides of the story. So far, it's not as divisive as it could be, to be honest, to put a positive note to that. Very good. You're listening to uh, Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Berlay. Uh, ben Otzog is here. Uh, also, John Slapin from the University of Zurich. Uh, 10.20 here. 9.20 in London, where we are heading now. I'm also happy to say that we're joined by our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning, Tyler. Good talk uh, to you. Just uh, listening to, to that uh, as as well. And I haven't seen the same type of stories bubbling up uh, in, in the UK. Of course, they were there uh, certainly in, in the first months of the conflict, also when uh, refugees uh, were, were being welcomed into the UK. Uh, and again, like everywhere, there was a degree of confusion, etc. Um, but uh, m- maybe uh, further into the newspapers, is this a topic as well um, on your side of the channel, Andrew? Not really, I think. But, but then you have to remember the UK, I think we, we took 65,000 uh, Ukrainians uh, since the conflict began. And already some of those have, as, as we're hearing, hearing from Chris, have already decided it, it's time to go back and they feel safe to return to their, to their country. So I would imagine the numbers are, are lower than that now. And when you compare that, I don't know, I, I looked the other day in Germany, I had, I think, roughly 860,000 Ukrainians they're taken in. So per capita, it's not, it's not a huge number. And there's still been strong goodwill towards the Ukrainians. Uh, it pops up here and then as a, as a footnote. Penny Mordant, one of the people who's standing to be a Tory leader, has a, a Ukrainian uh, living with her. She's, she's given um, refuge to someone. So that came up as a footnote this week. And occasionally you see a, a daft story. There's a, a story that's run over the last couple of weeks in the, in the Daily Mail about a, a couple who took in a, a, a refugee woman and you know, he left his partner for the, the refugee woman. So it became a little bit of a, a little cause celeb. But yeah, it, it really, on the whole, I think goodwill and it hasn't been a big story here at all. Mm. Well, Andrew, on the topic of goodwill, though, uh, or maybe not very much of it, of course, the, the story doesn't matter uh, what uh, paper or broadcast outlet you're looking at in the UK, of course, is the, the Tory leadership race. We touched on it last week. It is moving a pace. Uh, we saw a debate of sorts um, on Channel 4 the other evening. ITV is going to be hosting it uh, tonight. Uh, and then there, there's supposed to be one more, I guess, midweek. Um, but do you think it could almost all, you know, really be sort of you know, finished before we even get to Wednesday? Well, the idea is that you whittle it down to two that then go out to the, you know, the Tory party membership who vote on the final two. And judging by all of the surveys, it looks like you know, the, uh, Rishi Sunak will be one of the, the final two. But he's just not that popular with uh, you know, grassroots Tories. So it's, it's what's most interesting is to see who comes in second against him. And as you said, we had this debate on Friday um, and I did watch it. And it's, it's fascinating because Liz Truss has been put up as the candidate of the right, but she was just pretty useless uh, on, on TV, getting her, her views across robotic, n- not very clear in how she expressed her, her thoughts and, and and the person everybody is is, is intrigued by is um kemi badenov who's who's uh, a woman of color who's not a huge amount of um experience in government but is is this darling now of the right and she's the person it would be interesting if she was up against uh, rishi when it goes out to the, the membership uh, and just going back to rishi's uh, performance because you know, he he uh, you know really 
probably rose to a level of prominence during the pandemic. We saw him almost, uh, not if not every day, every other day, uh, side by side with Boris Johnson uh, and, and certainly having a view in terms of funds being released, what he was doing for, for the economy and was seen as, you know, as, as being very statesmanlike. Uh, and yet, you know, there's been all kinds of, of course, comment, but, you know, now in this new position seems and, and comes across rather wooden and maybe that's being kind. It's just funny when he he strays away from the world of you know finance and economics to start presenting a vision of what he would like Britain to be, and then it feels it feels it it just doesn't feel very genuine. It feels a little bit kind of thought out and and and, and thought out with his his advisors about what what he's going to say, and I I, I don't know he he he's. He's astute and he's you know a, a clever guy and probably of all the people who spoke on Friday, he was the least kind of frivolous in the kinds of things he was promising. He he seemed to be still willing to stick this idea that you know you can't just give money away that it has to be paid for, which was an old Tory idea, but everyone else seemed to be willing to kind of like make rash promises all over the place. But it's this vision thing which I think is a, is a bit more um, concerning for the Tories because that's what they like about Kemi Badenoch. She she talks about cultural issues her, her past is a bit is, is a bit more intriguing so you can't pin her down on issues and I don't know Rishi he still has this issue that he he, he married into a huge amount of wealth his wife's tax affairs were, were, were not approved of by the general public earlier this year so I think he, he does face an uphill battle with the with the Tory members. Ben, you of course touched on the leadership and maybe the shortage uh, as well of, of potentially good leaders. Uh, but looking at it uh, from your perch uh, here in Zurich uh, and how this is playing out, uh, what's your take? Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's it's almost it almost feels like it's too 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 early to tell at this stage because we've just gotten used to the fact that Boris is out for now. He'll be back at some point. Let's face it. Um, so it's a bit tricky, and we've seen it in in other such primary logic um, uh, in other places as well that over the course of these debates sometimes unexpected potential new leaders come up obviously the the elections will be quite soon in the UK um, but maybe too soon to tell maybe there's a surprise candidate at some point and as we also know it takes one or two wrong sentences or wrong statements or a bit of a small scandal of which there's no short supply in UK politics for everything to change yet again so I'll watch it from far. Andrew, just outside of the um, the Tory sphere, but if you look at this on a national level um, on the UK, any sense of what the what the papers or what the people are also saying? Because you you, land, you know, suddenly you're landed with, uh, of course, uh, a new PM, uh, which you know people didn't have a say in. They might have voted for the party, but of course not the person. Um, but uh, what are, what are polls saying? But even maybe beyond reading polls, just the mood in terms of who people are embracing, saying this is someone, yeah, I would be happy with them standing on the White House lawn uh, or, you know, flying to do, yeah, various trips to Abidjan or to, to Riyadh. Well, I think the papers, you know, they're aligning according to their political beliefs. So all, all the papers on the right are desperate to stop Penny Mordaunt, who they feel is, is, is not strong enough on the Brexit issue. And that's the other funny thing is like, you know, they're always accusing the liberal left of being you know, still fretting about Brexit. But all of these candidates are still defined by that vote. 
you know, for Liz Truss as an issue because she didn't initially go with Brexit. Then she became an, you know, an arch Brexiteer, whereas somebody like Kemi Badenoch was uh, was a Brexiteer from the beginning. So every single thing they do is still defined by this vote. And this morning in the papers, Rishi Sunak has written a piece saying he promises to you know, tear up hundreds of pieces of EU legislation to free Britain from the, the controls of Europe. Well, what the hell have they been doing all these recent years? Because they've had plenty of opportunity to do that. And actually, most of the things that he's probably going to talk about tearing up are things which protect you as consumers and uh, as Britons as well. So it's a funny thing they're still very defined about. But the public, I think they've enjoyed watching the candidates maybe who are not going to win. So Tom Tugendhat has been able to kind of say what he likes and be a bit funny and cheeky. And I think Kimmy Badenoch as well is, is, has spoken directly and with, you know, with clarity. And so those are the two that have come through with popular appeal, but will not not be, I don't think, that the, well, definitely not Tom Tugendhat won't be in the final two. John, uh, you were living uh, just uh, east of London uh, in, in, in Essex for a stint as well. So looking back in on this, uh, how do you see it? So uh, I'll say two things. So first of all, with regard to Brexit, and we're living here in Switzerland. And so one thing we should know living in Switzerland is that negotiations with the EU will continue forever, right? Uh, it's been 35 years or so in Switzerland. So we can expect the Brexit vote to haunt these politicians for a long time to come. The second thing, uh, stepping back and taking a bigger picture on the leadership race, I think it's worth noting that of the six final, uh, or the eight final candidates, six of them were not white men. Um, and that we've seen this uh, diversity in the leadership of the Tory party that was a function of David Cameron's leadership and putting minority candidates in safe seats. and. It's also worth noting the contrast of that with the voter base of the conservative membership. So roughly 200,000 uh, people will select the uh, one of the final two candidates. And those 200,000 people tend to be much whiter, older, and more English than the UK as a whole. Uh, and so there's this uh, a bit of a disconnect perhaps between the leadership and the membership with regard to demographics, it's interesting to see whether that has any impact on policy or outcomes. It's not clear that it does, but I think it's worth noting. Andrew, and just uh, on that, it's interesting looking at the Sunday Times this morning as well. David Cameron wants to remind us uh, of that, uh, a, a piece by him as well, um, in a way almost uh, saying that he, he sort of set the stage for the, the candidates uh, that, that we've seen emerge at the top. It's fascinating because I, you, I think it's true that you would imagine that the Tories would, would not be very good at dealing with race. But I think this is why, oddly, they like Kevin Badenoch because it's, it's, it's hard to pin a label on the Tories if you're, you're led by a black woman who once worked in McDonald's, who has a great education, who's lived in Nigeria and the UK, who is, is she, she, she's very hard to pin down and say, oh, you're just you know, the, the traditional old white Tory guy and we can claim you do all these you know, various things that are against a more liberal society. She's much more interesting than that. And it's, it's fascinating, that, fascinating that actually lots of the people on, on, on the right have backed her and have said that actually she, she is the challenger. She would be harder for Keir Starmer to kind of like put in a pigeonhole than any of the other candidates. 
Andrew Tuck in London, uh, can I invite you back in about 25 uh, minutes time? You can go off and make a flat white or something, because I think <laughs> as much as David Cameron um, has been, uh, you know, sort of certainly uh, plugging uh, the merits of what he did uh, all those years ago. Uh, we have a new project that we need to spend some time on uh, at the end of the program, because uh, I know a copy landed on your desk, one landed on my desk on Friday. Uh, and I think we should talk to our listeners a little bit about uh, the Monocle Companion. So uh, if it's all right, so you can even have two coffees, Andrew, if you like. Thank you very much. <laughs> I'll see you uh, in a bit. Emma Nelson is also in London right now. She's there with the news headlines. Thank you very much indeed, Tyler. Thousands of fire crews are fighting wildfires in Portugal, Spain and southwestern France in the grip of a heat wave that shows no sign of easing. 12,000 people have been evacuated from their homes in France's Gironde region. Russia says it's stepping up military operations in Ukraine. Moscow's rockets and missiles have pounded cities in strikes that Kiev says have killed dozens in recent days. Glaciers in the Swiss Alps have been covered with blankets to stop them melting in the extreme summer heat. To protect the 12,000-foot-high Rhone glacier nestled in the southern part of the Alps, white UV-resistant blankets have been placed over it by locals who've made the trip every year since 2009. And the French city of Nancy has introduced a new way of removing Japanese knotweed from its local cemeteries. For 15 years, the city has used a herd of goats to mow the grass in one of its parks, but it's now moved the animals to the cemetery. The decision was made because the goats find the knotweed particularly delicious. And those are the headlines here in London. Back to you, Tyler in Zurich. Emma, of course, it begs the question, what do you do with your knotweed? Well, I wish I could eat it, frankly, um, but I've never tried, but I just suspect it's not very nice. I have spent many an hour trying to get rid of my Japanese knotweed. It's, it's tough, it's resistant, and it, and it won't go away. How, how, how do you deal with yours? I've, I've uh, more of a balcony lifestyle. Yes, so, I know. Uh, yes, so, uh, <laughs> stop too many invasive uh, species. I was about to say. Japanese things only end up on the plate. Well, um, yes, absolutely. Well, keep an actually, eye on it. Elsewhere as well, there's Japanese things on, on shelves and, and feet. And yeah, yeah. listen, mm-hmm. we know there's, we have a penchant for, for all things from Japan. Apart also, from knotweed. <laughs> from Norway, Emma Nelson, uh, we will catch up with you uh, later. It uh, It's just gone 10.33 here in Zurich. Same time uh, also in uh, Paris, uh, but we're actually going to, to Lyon. So a little bit, uh, a bit of a diversion, but uh, to chat to uh, Hani Balassin. Uh, and uh, some might uh, know Hani as the owner of the shop uh, Bonjour Jacob, a very, very good outlet uh, for books and fine print and uh, also good coffee. And they, they also don't do a bad job of also hosting uh, radio programs as well uh, who want to cover French uh, elections. Uh, but uh, Hani joins us uh, from Lyon. Bonjour, good to uh, good to have you this morning. Good morning. Uh, good morning. Uh, very, very good to have you. Uh, Hani, I was uh, I was in your shop a, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I was doing a, a tour on a, a very, very hot evening. The streets were alive uh, in your neighborhood. Uh, there were people spilling uh, out in front of the shop. Uh, it seemed uh, like many Parisians and tourists as well. Um, we're, we're stocking up uh, for their, their summer reads before, uh, before heading out. What's been selling? What's, uh, what's flying off the shelves? What are, what are your recommendations uh, for, for summer? Yeah, just one point. We were happy to receive you last month. And for uh, summer recommendation, uh, um, for, for, for my selection of this morning, I choose uh, two new French MOOCs or magazine uh, who choose to, to, to have a ver- uh, an English-French uh, version and an English uh, one uh, to meet international readers and, uh, uh, and get the bath. The first one is about interior design. The name is Loft magazine. Uh, it's a biannual magazine, and uh, 
lot of uh, reports and uh, pictures, photos, illustration uh, about inspiration and and what we, what we like about Slaft magazine, uh, the ability to find the best source uh, of inspiration from professional or uh, as well uh, as from individuals, uh, which give a neutral <coughs> right and uh, varied document. Uh, and the second issue is out maybe one week ago or something like this. And, and just, uh, I'm interested because when I was in your store, I saw Sloft. Uh, it's it's an interesting format. It's it's a smaller, as you said, it's it's a MOOC. It's a cross between a, a, a magazine and, and a book. And I think we're seeing many other titles come out in similar formats uh, right now. What gap in the market do you think Sloft as a magazine is is filling because of course we know there's no shortage of magazines devoted to architecture and and fine interiors um, Hani, what do you think they're doing well i think i think uh, the gap with the uh, with sloft magazine and the new format of this type of of, of mooc or magazine um i think this uh, capacity to find uh, the good inspiration and something uh auto, something uh, originally uh, you know, we don't have only uh, professional uh, speech or uh, analyze. Uh, we have real things uh, with real people. Uh, and the second point with Gap, uh, of this type of magazine, uh, we can find it with Sloft, we can find it with a lot of other magazines, is the community. Uh, all new magazines try to create before the community, before uh, the paper. And I think this two point uh, create the gap with other uh, or actual uh, offer of classic interior magazine or uh, all other MOOCs. Uh, and just um, maybe give us a two more, uh, because obviously we know that uh, most of France is headed off on, on holiday uh, already. And if, if they haven't left, then they're certainly leaving uh, on, on vacation uh, this week. Uh, so uh, aside from Sloft, uh, what else do you have for us? Yeah, the second one is for summer. The name is a weekend abroad. Uh, the name is in English. Uh, the, this this paper is in French and is in English. Uh, and the, a mix between uh, lifestyle and travel guide. Uh, this is a special a special model because uh, we will find a meeting a lot of uh, authentic meeting with uh, with local uh, entrepreneurs, uh, chefs. Uh, people and we can get uh, something uh, like a map of the town uh, designed by uh, by local uh, people and in this uh, type of the last one it's um, seven uh, in France and we have issue about Marseille uh, one issue about Arles uh, about uh, seven uh, and a very beautiful Hani Habbalassin, uh, in Lyon, we're going to have to, to leave it there. But um, you were just talking about uh, Weekend uh, Abor, which is uh, a fantastic series. Uh, if anyone is near any bookshops, not only in France, um, but uh, it's a title which is uh, actually uh, managing to find itself onto newsstands uh, all over the world. Um, but as you said, great uh, issues on Alan Tejo, the Belarics, uh, a very, very good issue uh, on Arles and also uh, Marseille. That was Hani uh, Balassin joining us. Um, from Lyon, uh, from Bonjour Jacob, which of course is a store in Paris. We're going to take a very short break. We are going to head to Bangkok after this. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday, brought to you in association with Spain. Spain has an inexhaustible capacity to surprise, from its rich cultural traditions to its landscapes. It's a place of many wonders for people of all tastes and interests. 
A country whose cuisine offers almost infinite regional variation, Spain boasts far more than just paella and gazpacho. And whether you crave urban conviviality or the serenity of nature, a perfect Iberian bolt hole awaits. Few countries can equal Spain when it comes to homegrown produce. This abundance of delicious ingredients informs countless regional cuisines that have been perfected over centuries. Across the peninsula, chefs delight in reinventing traditional recipes for foodies craving fresh flavours. But where will you stay? In the centre of the old town, with the clink of glasses below your balcony, or deep in wine country, where the lodgings are as ancient as the vines and dishes are designed around native varietals? With 5,000 kilometres of coastline, beaches abound, and it's easy to avoid the crowds by choosing a rural town where the welcome is as warm as the weather. Everything you're dreaming of this weekend in Spain this summer. Rediscover Spain and reimagine it. Spain, spreading sunshine on Monocle on Sunday on Monocle 24. You're back with Monocle on Sunday, just at 10.40, uh, almost 10.41 here uh, in Zurich. Ben Otzog is with me, also uh, John Slapin. Uh, you gave us, a, again, a wonderful Sunday morning brunch buffet of stories. <laughs> we shortages. We dealt with the shortages, uh, the shortage of leadership, uh, certainly, uh, or potential shortage of leadership uh, in, in the UK. But maybe we should talk a little bit about energy. Uh, because this is a, a leading topic, not just uh, on the front pages of the papers here, but really uh, all, all over the world um, at the moment, but certainly in a European context. Indeed, I think it is. So the current Swiss press, the two major newspapers, both have roughly the same story about potential electricity shortage in winter, but maybe already before, which is quite indicative of these debates. And you would, as you say, see the same headline across Europe, which is quite late in a way, this idea that there can be electricity shortages. I know that in Swiss, but also other European governments, scenarios for crisis management, for exercises, for that like worst of the worst, usually it wasn't a war that was top of the list. It wasn't a pandemic that was top of the list. It was usually energy shortage, blackouts. That was their worst nightmare. It always has been, but it never really reached popular debates. To us, it's not. It's considered such a basic thing to, well, have running electricity as much as running water and the likes, and that we never gave it much thought. And now all of a sudden it's a thing. And just for Switzerland particularly, there's a few factors that come together, of course, a shortage of gas supplies from Russia. And being one factor, then all kinds of French nuclear power plants apparently seem to be in maintenance and Switzerland imports a lot of that kind of electricity in winter and climate change, yay, uh, low levels of low water levels of lakes in the mountains that make hydroelectricity a bit of an issue as well. So all of a sudden, these papers talk about, well, in case of shortages, which supermarkets do have to close, which uh, industries are cut off from electricity first. And I remember the German papers yesterday did the very, very same. So it's getting really tangible. I think a sense of urgency is really needed because it's up to all of us to probably save some energy over the course of the coming months. Um, and there's a lot that one as an individual can do. So we should probably focus on that. But that's certainly a theme and it will probably not um, leave the headlines anytime soon. But Benno, this is Switzerland, uh, and our, our, many of our listeners are thinking the land, uh, of course, uh, which has redundancy after redundancy, uh, all kinds of backup plans. You know, certainly, I can think of the height of the pandemic, talking about all of the 
the various stockpiling that was here? Is there not three years of energy supply in Switzerland? <laughs> you wonder, that's when it gets tricky, doesn't it? Technology and such. It is the country of economic of supplies and all kinds of things. I think we have coffee worth of strategic um, stocks somewhere, wherever, um, worth several years. But electricity with all these batteries that we need is a bit trickier indeed. Actually, our battery, if you will, that kind of ensures electricity supply when there's no solar power, when power, nuclear power plants are standing still or so, is lakes in the mountains. Actual water hydropower is about 40% of the mix. This is a bit of a luxury. Other countries don't have that. They base um, their redundancies on a bit of a, either there's wind or there's sun or ideally both at the same time. So yeah, that's exactly that luxurious position that we used to have everything in supply and we already complain if Amazon delivers two days late. Mm. So things are changing. John, do you want to uh, expand on that one or do you have another story that you might want to want to pick up on? Yeah, so the story that caught my eye this week uh, is both, I think, simultaneously quite sad and also very uplifting. And that's the story of the distance runner Mo Farah, um, who revealed uh, this week that he, as a child, uh, was trafficked into the UK and basically sold into child slavery for a few years uh, following the death of his father in the Civil War, um, being torn away from his mother and his twin brother. Um, but then being discovered by his PE teacher, uh, brought to the track and really finding himself as a distance runner. Uh, and then of course, becoming Olympic gold medalist and uh, one of the very few distance runners who is a household name, at least in the UK. Uh, and it's a, uh, uh, <clears throat> an avid runner myself um, who is on a good day in the middle of the pack of my age group at the local uh, city uh, run. I just find the first the stories about runners always uh, very interesting. And second, this this tale of refugee, of hardship, and then of overcoming that uh, amazingly uplifting. It also speaks to the role of refugees in, in the UK. Uh, and uh, we can tie that back into the, even to their tour, the, Tory leadership contest that we talked about earlier, and this uh, the importance of, of of immigrants and 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 refugees in in in, in British life. Indeed, um, I just uh, said a little bit earlier that we might be heading to to Bangkok, and I've also been warned that uh, they might have the same phone lines as they have in Lyon this morning uh, as well. So I'm going to try to seize the opportunity uh, to get to uh, our correspondent there, uh, Gwen Robinson. Uh, Gwen, Sawadikap. Oh, Sawadikap, Tyler. Okay, there you are. Very good. Gwen, uh, you teased us at the top of the program saying that you'd have stories uh, from, from Bali, Bangkok, uh, and, and even as, as far as, uh, as Sydney. But uh, uh, where do you want to begin? Well, I think we should begin where I'm, um, where I'm sitting, which is in the middle of Bangkok. Uh, we're in the middle of uh, a string of one of the, the longest, most alcohol-free public holidays in Thailand. It's the beginning of Buddhist Lent. So, uh, with little warning, it happens every year, particularly foreigners are caught unawares. Suddenly, you cannot, there's no alcohol sales for days in the city. Well, this time, two days. Last year, I think it was even worse. So, um, so that sort of sets the scene. It's a very sober, uh, sober uh, period, and uh, not so much uh, down south on the island of Koh Phangan, where uh, those of us sitting in Bangkok completely dry were watching uh, the full moon party, which uh, I think became quite notorious in earlier years before COVID and was completely, obviously, uh, abandoned, fell into a black hole and is now 
come roaring back with, you know, at least 20,000 uh, uh, mainly foreigners parting away for the last 48 hours down there. So one could say, I think there are signs that the tourism industry is, um, you know, limping back in Thailand uh, in some areas with a vengeance, but still a little bit sad. There's been a lot of carnage and uh, we're still seeing a lot of hotels and other tourism-related businesses foundering. So, so Gwen, just uh, you're in the center of Bangkok at the moment. So maybe just paint us a little bit of a picture. We are in this recovery phase. Uh, we've seen numerous announcements from the Thai government and certainly the Thai tourism authorities about, yes, please come back. And and every it seems every week there's another measure lifted uh, and things become easier and easier. But it's maybe not quite as easy and relaxed as things might be for our listeners in Europe or, or North America. But anyway, efforts are being made. But if if we were to walk around uh, some of the major yeah, the major shopping centers, uh, which, of course, dominate the center of the city and you mentioned the word carnage, do you see a number of empty shop fronts still uh, or is there this yeah this the sense of you know that that Thailand is always able to sort of move forward and to to shift and maneuver and and keep keep up appearances what's what's your um, read on it well you're exactly right we always think Thailand you know the famous nickname Teflon Thailand and and definitely there's something very resilient in both the Thai economy and the Thai spirit. Um, but definitely you can see, uh, you know, it's a little depressing, particularly near these notorious entertainment districts like uh, uh, Patpong. Um, you know, every second bar is, um, is boarded up. Uh, there's a lot of little restaurants that went to the wall and some hotels either changing hand or, or closed down. Still, it's not nearly as depressing because this is the main capital city, uh, the the hub of commerce, uh, et cetera. So, you know, pretty well, I think Bangkok is picking itself up and dusting itself off and getting on with it. But visits to areas like Koh Samui, you know, so popular at one point, but uh, the the main street there is truly depressing. A lot of uh, closed businesses and uh, clearly more poverty and often stalls in the street. You see people selling their own clothes, you know, to make some money. that said, I would say that Thailand, more than a lot of other countries in Southeast Asia, the, the government did stump up with uh, quite a bit of uh, effort in you know, social safety net uh, payments through the COVID period. Uh, still, you know, there's been a, really a lot of suffering. Um, and incredibly, just the last couple of weeks, we've been reading that the Thai government has decided to bring in a new tax on tourists or rather foreign arrivals um, which is likely to be brought in by the end of the year, a tax of maybe about 300 baht or around $10 um, coming in, which you know really is a bizarre time if you're trying to encourage tourists to impose not just a, a new little tax, but also add that bureaucracy, another hassle for travellers. Um, so that seems to be on the cards, but like everything in Thailand, it, it hasn't happened yet. So it's really something to watch. And they are also talking about bringing in two tiers of hotel rooms and and sort of special rate for ties and a special rate for foreigners. You can guess which one would be more expensive. But that also seems to be an odd thing to talk about right now. Gwen, uh, just quickly, uh, take us uh, down to, uh, to to Bali, and of course uh, another resort, uh, and and of course you know a country which is, yeah 
trying to figure itself out, uh, well, has also been defining itself a little bit in an, an interesting way diplomatically, um, but but also uh, at, at at the same time, uh, it needs to, of course, uh, you know, get uh, you know, tourism. Yeah, dollars, euros, uh, francs uh, back into or coming back into the country as well. Exactly, and um, yes, I did. Uh, I did manage to stop in in Bali on the way to Sydney, and uh, it was just before the latest round of uh, G20 uh, meetings. And uh, as listeners might be aware, Indonesia is hosting G20, uh, including the summit this year which involves a, a huge amount of diplomacy, including uh, this weekend, this recent days, a lot of uh, um, senior officials, uh, ministers, including the U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, all these people have come in for the finance ministers meeting. And just uh, the previous week, we had the foreign ministers of the G20 and the Ukrainians uh, who were invited as a political statement. And in November, we'll have the summit. So the president, Jokowi, has been on an incredible shuttle diplomacy around uh, visiting both Moscow and uh, and the Ukraine, um, uh, inviting Zelensky personally to the G20. Um, and uh, I think this is quite a new tax for Indonesia, and it really means business. And clearly, this G20 year is so important to the Indonesians to pull it off, not just for their own face and image, but I think... Also, tourism-wise, as you say, you know, Bali has been in complete meltdown. It has been one of the great cash cows for Indonesia, the the tourism industry there. And uh, it fell off a cliff the last couple of years. And I was in Ubud, a very, um, you know, popular destination, the hill destination uh, for tourists. And that is truly depressing, every third. uh, And also Semenyaka in Bali uh, around the beach. Every third uh, shop is closed, um, and you can see evidence of uh, of more poverty and joblessness. So I think there's a real push this year to, with the G20 uh, converging with this big push to rebuild the economy. Um, you know, and so far the Indonesians seem to be handling it quite well. They've pulled off the G20, barring all these walkouts and walk-ins. And the, the Russians walked out of the foreign minister meeting and uh, the finance minister's meeting was blighted by their inability to agree on a communique and I think that's going to characterize the rest of the the summitry in November as well. And finally Gwen just before we go um, in uh, 45 seconds or less uh, just uh, you're you're yeah, you hadn't been back to Australia in a while, uh, and uh, obviously hit uh, Sydney at a time when uh, things were um, more than a, a little wet as well. Yes, I can tell you. I, I think you land, it, it was nearly zero degrees at night and in the morning. It rained constantly all day. And also half of Sydney or surrounding region is underwater. Um, so it truly is. Uh, I think uh, the, the view is that it's probably one of the worst uh, periods of uh, extreme uh, winter weather for Australia. And meanwhile, people are watching on TV as in Europe, you guys are kind of baking, I think, in extraordinary heat, tough uh, drive home climate change, but also the, the um, new government in Australia, Albanese, uh, came to power and went immediately into an extraordinary round of foreign shuttle diplomacy and attending all kinds of multilateral meetings. And, um, you know, amazingly, sitting in Australia, all the critics are piling in, accusing him of having a holiday and running away from the floods which I think was sort of a bit unnecessary, but uh, 
definitely Australia's got some climate issues. Indeed. Uh, Gwen Robinson, uh, our correspondent in uh, Bangkok, very good uh, to hear from you and also taking us on a bit of a spin uh, around the region. Uh, still with me also here in Zurich, John Slapen and Benno Zog. Benno, just uh, listening to this and thinking about G20 uh, coming up, uh, it's, it's probably going to be a rather, we sort of had a crammed spring, but it's probably going to be also a very crammed autumn as well as Asia reopens uh, and, and leaders can properly get out there. And it's not just the leaders. I mean, of course, there's been plenty of shuttling around the world of the last two years, but really <laughs> leaders with the full entourage and to do proper bilaterals uh, out, out in the world. It's been tricky already to keep track of it in my field of security studies and geopolitics and the likes of G7 summits, G20 summits, NATO summits and so on. And as you say, we can only expect that to increase maybe at an accelerated pace because who knows what the situation is like in winter, whether there's new tensions, new pandemic waves and so on. And these personal meetings and I would this week we saw Joe Biden touring the Middle East. Interesting new alliances, new partnerships, some fairly, I'm fairly uneasy about, um, others are badly needed. Um, so we certainly see more coming out of that. There's no summer break on that. No, and just uh, very quickly, uh, John, just uh, as the American around the table, a bit of a report card uh, on, uh, on this current administration, sort of we're at the halfway point here. So We are at the halfway point and it's, uh, he's in a tricky spot because he's been unable to push a lot of his domestic agenda through Congress. Um, although the Democrats control uh, notional majorities in both the House and the Senate, they're reliant on a few um, Democrats in the Senate who won't go along with uh, the program, namely Joe Manchin in particular from West Virginia. Uh, and so that's put him in a tricky spot and puts him in a tricky spot uh, going to the midterms and, and uh, the presidential election in a few years uh, to show what he's done and uh, and to please the Democratic base as well. Indeed. Um, I said that I would be bringing Andrew Tuck, our editor-in-chief, uh, back in, uh, and I think he's probably on his fourth flat, flat white of the morning, uh, Andrew. Uh, so uh, I set you up with a challenge, not a challenge, it's uh, it's, it's it's more of a bit of a, of a promotional moment. Uh, as I said, uh, we have a wonderful new volume, which is which is landed, which we want to tell our readers about. Uh, explain the Monocle Companion. Well, this is a, a, a paperback uh, edition with uh, 50 essays to improve your life. Uh, we hope it will accompany you to the, to the beach this summer or wherever you're going to uh, take um, some refuge from the heat and be a little bit inspired by the writers that we've gathered together between the covers. It's, it's a really beautiful uh, product. It's, it's, it's kind of the colour of a, a, a nice juicy peach. So it's, it's a delicious thing to dip into. And uh, you've written a nice piece about uh, the, well, the, the joys of the dip and the joys of uh, of being in Zurich, but we've got yeah, that's, writers that's, talking. That's, that's a dip. That's a dip in the water. Not not a not a guacamole <laughs> recipe. <laughs> uh, Although I like guacamole too. I, I do too. Uh, but Andrew, just as you were saying uh, very uh, very quickly as well, um, it's a, it's a wonderful volume. It's it's going to be out uh, on on newsstands very soon. Very much in the spirit of uh, of the MOOCs that uh, were being discussed a little bit earlier. We're going to have to leave it uh, there for today's program. Huge thanks to Ben Ozog, John Slate and Andrew Tuck back in London, Emma Nelson as well. Also, uh, Gwen Robinson and Hanny Valacine as well. Desiree Bendley, Reese James and Emma Nelson were our producers and Desi also looked after the audio in Zurich. Nora Hall did the same in London. I'm Tyler Brule. Monocle on Sunday is back next week. I'm off to Spain in between, uh, but have a very good weekend. Goodbye.